Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about what I read. That's not even all of them. Like, seriously, I, I obsessively catalog my books because I want to know what I have, and I don't want to end up with three copies of the same thing. But at last count, I have 2012 books. That's actual books. That's not even counting Kindle. If you liked books, just aren't sure what to read next, just hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, let me know what you think in the comments. Now this week's book hit my radar pretty much in response to the, hmm, can I say vaccine? Am I going to get banned if I say vaccine? They're very picky these days. The vaccine panic of the last year and the, to some people, shocking news that a rather large percentage of the black communities didn't trust the government enough to get the vaccine. And I thought, well, I mean, yeah, Tuskegee, why, why would the black community ever trust the government after that clusterfuck? Tuskegee first hit my radar in 1997. There was a, um, HBO did a movie based on it called Miss Evers Boys. The movie was okay. I, I rewatched it after reading this week's book, which is Bad Blood, The Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment by James H. Jones, new and expanded edition, new meaning 1993. But still, the movie is a lot more sympathetic to the doctors than reality warrants. <laughs> they, they, they don't deserve the sympathy that HBO gives them. And appropriately enough, this week's topical cocktail is called penicillin, after the treatment that the men of the experiment were denied because science. So let's do this. The cocktail itself is two ounces of blended scotch, three quarters ounce lemon juice, three quarters ounce three quarters ounce, three quarters ounce honey ginger syrup, and a quarter ounce of Eilie single malt scotch candied ginger to garnish. The actual recipe, including how to make honey ginger syrup will be in the description. Onto the book. Now in the early 20th century, the only extensive medical study to date that had been done on syphilis was the Oslo study, which was done at the very end of the 19th century, like 1891. Um, studied the effects of late-stage syphilis largely in white people because Oslo, Norway. That there were not a whole lot of black people in Norway at the time of the Oslo study. It's very far north. I figured it out. The big end is an ounce, the small end is a half ounce, so I'm just going to kind of eyeball it and go from there. So population-wise, population, so population -wise, study was done on the effects of syphilis on white people, which incidentally was already pretty well known. Syphilis having essentially evolved over the previous 400 years with European and hitting everyone from lowest peasants to royalty. Yeah. I, I feel like I read somewhere that one of the French kings suffered from it, but I couldn't find which one specifically, so maybe that was just a fictional plot point in a different book. I don't know. Uh, regardless, regardless of whether or not royalty actually was hit, syphilis was well known. And it was initially known as the French pox, because the French brought it back from a war in Italy or something like that. And over the course of the next 500 years, so 1495 is when it started to become really hit, it used to be 400 years by 1890, so the next 400 years, uh, doctors, as science progressed, had been able to plot its pathological trajectory pretty consistently. They knew what it was, well, they didn't know what caused it, but they knew what it was, they could identify the symptoms, and, and they knew what the stages were of it. Essentially, so, and, and so that's not in the book, that's just kind of some general background of the book. You know, I'm just going to do the lemon juice into here because I know it's going to be about three quarters ounce for a half a lemon. So essentially this is a sexually transmitted disease, which I have no idea if they even teach that in school anymore because 
I hear a lot of bizarre things about what's taught in school these days. That's going to present itself first off as a lesion or sore on the genitals. I, I hang on a second. I'm multitasking badly. It's probably a little more ginger syrup than I needed, but whatever. Essentially, this is a sexually transmitted disease that will present itself first as a lesion or sore on the genitals, although it's easier for men to spot because women could develop the sore inside the vaginal canal. And since the sore doesn't actually hurt, it could literally be unnoticed by women, which is among the many reasons that prostitution suddenly became a great concern to the church in you know the 16th, 15th, 16th centuries. So in previous centuries, they actually owned whorehouses. Sorry, it's another tangent. That is not this book. In this book, the author, James Jones, does go into the known stages of syphilis, stage one being that canker or sore lesion, which is generally gonna heal on its own unless it develops some other secondary infection from you know, handling, you could get a secondary staph infection or God forbid, gangrene on the penis, that would really suck. Um, I'm gonna shake this up so I can keep going with my cocktail. Pour this over ice. Mm -hmm. That initial sore is so small you may not even notice it. Right, seriously, men not, might not even know. I mean, for men, are you, it's easier to notice because it's a sore on your genitals. Women may not notice it because it could be inside of you, but it's a tiny little sore. It's gonna heal on its own, all right? You, you may not, it, it's so small you may not notice it. If you do notice it, it, it's just gonna heal on its own. So a lot of people don't even bother to seek help because they don't know what the hell's going on, especially in you know 1930s, 1920s, 1930s. United States where these things are not necessarily talked about openly in polite society. That sounds, it smells horrifying, but whatever. All right, we need a quarter ounce, which is gonna be about half of the little dude here. And apparently we just float that on the top. And then candied ginger, candied ginger for garnish. So the first sore is gonna heal on its own. While it is healing, secondary syphilis actually starts. So anywhere from six weeks to six months, you can go into second stage syphilis. Uh, the syphilitic will, or sorry, not will, may develop rash. Your bones and joints may become achy. You may have heart palpitations and you might actually start losing your hair in patches. Fever, indigestion, headaches, these are all common to second stage syphilis. They are also common to a host of other diseases and sometimes they're just standalone items. So if you are a hypochondriac, please don't panic. WebMD will diagnose you with anything you want to if uh, you are specific enough with your symptoms. So just go see your doctor, get a blood test, and if it's warranted, they'll recommend the right antibiotics for you. Now, secondary syphilis is also going to go away on its own, at which point it becomes latent, uh, which means basically you will have no other specific symptoms for syphilis for a period of time. Period of time can be anywhere from a, from a few weeks to 30 years. Seriously, 30 years of shit can go to sleep and then you think you're fine because 30 years is a lifetime, right? That does not mean that your body has spontaneously cured itself. This is just the known pathology of syphilis. This quiet period where you are asymptomatic, the bacteria that causes syphilis, it's a spirochet. I don't remember the exact, call, the exact name of it, it's medical, but it's wreaking an insane amount of internal damage on you. Anywhere from a few weeks to 30 years later, it's gonna wake up. And in that few weeks to 30 years, you might develop these rubbery tumors all over yourself. Your bones might deteriorate. Your, uh, one of the known symptoms of late stage syphilis for the last several hundred years has been the nose on your face literally dissolving because the bacteria eats 
the canal, the, the, your um, cartilage in your nose. So you might have no nose. It can attack your heart. The virus can attack your heart, causing your heart valves to lose their ability to shut properly. Your aortas might leak. Uh, syphilis can attack your brain or your spinal column, affecting your ability to walk, see, speak, and was a known cause of insanity. All right. Not I mean not. not I'm talking like physical insanity. Not obviously. Not psychological. So if you you know, that's its own thing. All of this was very well known to medical science when the public health services decided they need to do something about venereal disease in the 1930s. And the author of the book, while not dancing around the racism that did eventually center this in Macon County, Georgia, did specify that initially in 1930, the public health services were aware that poverty more than race was an indicator of syphilis, pellagra, which is basically extreme protein deficiency, uh, malnutrition, vitamin deficiency, geophagia, which is where somebody eats dirt, heard about that when I was reading about the book on communism in China because that was a huge problem where people were so hungry they were just eating dirt. Causes massive problems for your body. These were not just specific to black communities so much as to the extreme poverty that was part and parcel of 1930s depression era America. And initially Tuskegee was included in a study of treatment for syphilis in the rural poor that included multiple counties in the South, not just Macon County, Alabama. I think there were counties in Georgia and Georgia, Alabama, I think Mississippi and maybe Arkansas, but that's just background. And this was for treatment. They were looking to treat people and treatment at this point in time was in the form of Salverson and mercury. And this was provided to diagnose syphilitics, which was sponsored by the Julius Rosenwald Fund and was known as the Syphilis Control Demonstrations. Okay, And that was all they were trying to do was control it. Um, Salverson was hit and miss. It might work. It might also cause arsenic poisoning. So I mean, it was essentially an early form of chemotherapy. And Salverson was most effective on first stage syphilis. Right When you have that first initial canker, you, if you got it early enough, you could potentially kill it with the Salverson. So, Let's try this. Hmm. That's pretty good. The, sco the, the scotch I got, borrowed from my husband's work harem wife. He has like four or five work wives. Um, it's distilled, distilled and bottled in Scotland. It's Smokehead, peat intensity spice sweetness. You can definitely taste the peat. And I like that. I like smoked ales, so this is fine. Anyways. Back to the book. So, it's very good. I'm digging this. So this initial study of the effects of Salverson and syphilis on indigent populations was only targeted for six months. And it ran at six months, and that was the end of it. Okay, so 1930, ran for about six months. Boom. And yes, because the majority of the indigent populations were black, they were only black men in the study. And that's logical. We're cool up to here. This is all good. They were actually being treated. Uh, they, they called it bad blood versus syphilis. Okay, all right. You got to speak in language that the people you're talking to will understand. And they may not understand syphilis, right? On the flip side, if you're an overeducated doctor, maybe don't talk down to people. So there's that too. The syphilis control demonstrations were limited to black men. The reason they limited it to men was, remember when I said that the sores for women could be up inside, you might not even know you had it. They wanted to get a very specific progression of the disease, meaning they needed to know when the initial infection was. And the best way to do that is to ask the men, when did you first see this sore? Okay, that's gonna provide a timeline. So this is 1930, Salverson was the only treatment, the men are being treated, 
partially. All right. Why partially? Because the occurrence of syphilis in the South among poor populations was incredibly high. Like 30% of the population had contracted this. All right. It, it, was, it was pretty bad. And there just wasn't enough of the medication around to, to provide to everybody. Additionally, the public health service tried to elicit private doctors to assist, but they were offering essentially $2 per patient. The going rate at the time was $5 per person. And understand, as much as people like to scream that all whites in the South were racist, the doctors in Alabama typically weren't. They couldn't be. They were practicing in a location where 80% of the population was black. If you are racist and limit your ability and limit yourself to only treating white people, you're going to freaking starve. All right, that's one of the beauties of strict capitalism is there's no room for racism, not if you want to survive as a business. Different tangent. But they did want to be paid for their services, which is not unreasonable. You want to be paid for your time, so does the doctor. And the government was only offering a fraction of what their services were worth. The doctors were not exactly lining up to help with treatment. So the six months run is up. One of the doctors, and there were about five initially in the study, so I don't recall exactly which one came up with this brainchild. But they wondered if they could turn Tuskegee into another version of the Oslo study, but specifically looking for how the disease would be untreated or would be different in an untreated black population. So the five doctors initially involved were Dr. Oliver C. Wenger, Dr. Talia Farrow-Clark, Dr. Raymond H. Vonderlaer, Dr. John R. Heller, and Dr. Eugene Dibbles. These are the ones that started it. Over the 40 years the program ran, countless unnamed doctors were involved. A lot of them were medical interns or specialists studying the effects of syphilis. None of them voiced any objections. Every single one of them were like, this is cool, we're learning, we're good with this. When the, so when the, because they were all interns and learning and studying, essentially none of them got paid for it. It was a learning experience for them. When the study of the, it was called officially the study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male began. Their expenses were basically limited to the cost of Nurse Eunice Rivers at about $1,200 per year or $20,200 per year for inflation. The travel expenses for the doctors, the five named doctors involved, and the doctor salaries were not included as line items on the budget for the Tuskegee study. So their budget was about $1,200 per year, which was paid to Nurse Rivers. And that was all of it. All right, so she, out of that 1200 she's expected to pay her own travel expenses to drive all over Macon, Georgia, and corral these men to come in for their medical treatments, which were not treatments. And from the, from the absolute get-go, the study was flawed, extremely flawed. Since the purpose of the study, the stated purpose of the study, was to see how syphilis progressed in the untreated male, and all of the subjects had, in fact, received treatment, and Salverson and Mercury under the syphilis control demonstrations, immediately it's flawed. But rather than saying the undertreated syphilis infections, they just said, well, they weren't treated enough for it to make a difference, so we're going to call them untreated. So, yeah, because science. So it was determined to be okay. The good doctors proceeded to obtain detailed medical histories of 400 syphilitics and 200 members of a control group who had tested negative for syphilis. And they offered free medical treatment to all of the members. The treatment in this case being aspirin and tonic. Placebos, babies basically. Maybe some vitamins. Uh, and it seemed like a miracle because to people who have never ever had aspirin before, it's going to work amazingly well on your aches and pains. And so suddenly you are feeling better. You're not hurting because of these aspirin. Hmm. 
nowhere in there did they actually explain to the subjects of the study what was being studied. All right, they simply said it was bad blood. The, the movie I mentioned earlier, Miss Evers Boys, they have a scene where the pompous doctor explains in great detail to the men what's going on because he just can't stand them not knowing what's going on. And Miss Evers steps in and explains in a language they can understand. And I am, based on this book, pretty sure that never ever happened. Uh, one of the, as one of the test survivors testified before Congress said, I ain't never understood the study. They, they were never told what was going on. I mean, just as an aside, I genuinely enjoy Alfre Woodard as an actress. She played the lead, but the book explains the true horror and deception that went on. The, the movie, if you'll forgive the expression, whitewashes history to make the public health services officers sound like they actually cared. And they were just trying to, to improve things and understand life better and prove that they wanted to prove <laughs> that the black men were just the same as white men that the disease would run its course. And that's the exact opposite of what they were doing. In reality, they wanted to prove that there were differences and that untreated syphilis would, react, would, would affect a different course in a black man than it would in a white man. They incidentally failed because as it turns out, we're all just human. And the disease is gonna ravage its way through everybody following the exact same trajectory with minor differences. And I mean minor, like some per people might not develop neurological problems some people might die before they develop neurological problems. So, yeah. Such garbage. These people were such garbage. There's a special place in hell for these people. Burn, baby, burn. That's all I'm going to say. And the movie made it seem like Miss Evers slash Nurse Rivers seemed like she was aware of the horror and just didn't know what to do about it. And there's no indication that that is the case. And the author seemed to have a great deal of sympathy for Nurse Rivers. She was the human point of contact and did everything she could to help these men. She visited them in their extremely rural and poverty-stricken homes to ensure that they were receiving the care that they were promised under the study. Not the treatment, just the care. And while in the movie she's shown asking questions and wanting to know when the men would get the penicillin, they've got to get a better camera. This one keeps on me. In the movie she's shown asking questions and wanting to know when the men were going to get the penicillin. The Nurse Rivers, as described in the book, did not trust penicillin. She did not think, or she thought it was dangerous medicine. She trusted the doctors to do what was right and best for the men in the study. I mean, I don't know, maybe she did voice objections in private and ask the doctors, but when asked publicly, she towed the party line. She said that penicillin could kill the men, and so she didn't think they should have it. So the study starts in 1932, all right? So the, the syphilis control demonstrations in 1930, it took them, you know, 18 months to get there together and get the ball rolling. Study starts in 1932. While penicillin was discovered in 1928, it was not readily available and recognized as a source of treatment for syphilis until 1943. So while the lack of informed consent is disgusting, the doctors are morally gray up to this point, okay? Salverson was not effective for late-stage syphilis, which all the subjects had. And they pass the first and secondary stages, they're into the tertiary, Salverson does nothing. So there really was no known treatment for that first 11 years of the study, okay? And really what they wanted to perform were the autopsies, all right? They wanted to, because, you know, you can, you might observe some physical signs, like you'll notice if somebody goes blind, you'll notice if somebody stops being able to walk and you can make the in educated assumption that it's a result of the syphilis, but without that autopsy, you don't really know something else could have gone on. Maybe they had 
you know, a, a family history of macular degeneration that caused the blindness and had nothing to do with the syphilis. Without that autopsy, you don't know. So that's what they went over the autopsies. And Nurse Rivers had remarkable success getting permission to perform the autopsies. I think out of 143 men that they knew and were able to corral into a hospital at the time of their death, there was exactly one who said no. Their family said no, they don't want an autopsy. So that's really amazing. And part of what aided that was a philanthropic fund, the Millbank Memorial Fund, which provided $500 per year for the duration of the study to pay burial costs with increases as costs rose. So yeah, they were in on it too. This allowed basically $50 per person for burial funds. And if, if, and this was the big if, the person or their family agreed to the autopsy. It's the only way you were gonna get it. So the autopsies were performed on the men as they died one by one of a completely treatable disease. It's so baffling. Uh, and what's really stupid is penicillin would cure them, but it's not gonna reverse whatever damage has been done, right? So with the detailed medical histories, if they said, okay, well this, you know, gentleman A contracted it in 1922 you know, and he, had syphilis for what would that be 21 years before he was treated with penicillin and then he lived out the rest of his life and died in 1984 and we were able to do an autopsy on him and so 23 years of untreated syphilis resulted in x still would have been fine would have been valid if they got consent right but they didn't even ask they just they just let these men go around untreated they didn't offer them penicillin i'm just It's so disgusting. It's so disgusting. Basically, if they'd been honest from the get-go, provided what care they could, including penicillin when it became available, and then simply tracked them in until they died, they still could have gotten medically relevant data and been on the right side of history. Instead, they randomly decided that no one should be treated because some people had been known to have allergic reactions to penicillin, and so they might die from penicillin. Unlikely as that is, because it would have been administered in a hospital, which means if somebody had had an anaphylaxic reaction, they were right there, Johnny on the spot to treat them and make sure they lived. So they just treated nobody. They allowed this virulent bacteria to ravage a population, leaving men insane, blind, and unable to walk for science. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, the public health services reach was such that when World War II started and a significant portion of the subjects under study were eligible for enlistment, they overrode the US Army on giving them treatment. They're like, nope, those guys can't have treatment. They literally had lists out to all of the health clinics in the county so that if anybody showed up for treatment there, they couldn't get treatment. And that is something that was in the movie that was right and horrifying. They had these lists that men couldn't get treatment in any other clinics. They had to go to Tuskegee to get the treatment. That was not a treatment, it was aspirin. Overrode the U.S. Army. World War II. We went to fight Nazis who were engaged in similar behaviors in Europe. This is not a shining moment for liberty in America. The first rumblings of distaste from the medical community are heard. Now, Dr. Erwin J. Schatz of Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit became the first member of the medical community to object to the Tuskegee experiment. He read a, a, an article by one of those visiting doctors that I mentioned earlier in a medical journal who was writing about Tuskegee and what Dr. Schatz wrote to him was, and this is a direct quote, I am utterly astounded by the fact that physicians allow patients with a potentially fatal disease to remain untreated when effective therapy is available. 
I assume you feel that the information which is extract extracted from observations of this untreated group is worth their sacrifice. If this is the case, then I suggest that the units, United States Public Health Service and those physicians associated with it need to reevaluate their moral judgments in this regard. He was ignored. The doctor that he wrote to never responded. Public Health Services never said anything. Not so easily ignored was Peter Buxton, who was a Public Health Services venereal disease interviewer and investigator in San Francisco. In 1966, he heard some co-workers talking about Tuskegee, and he didn't quite believe what he was hearing. He thought, there's no way. This doesn't jive. This can't be right. You know, 20 years post-World War II. Part of his job as an interviewer and investigator was to write a short paper on venereal disease or epidemiology every couple of months. So in 66, he decided to write a paper on Tuskegee. He got all the information he needed from Public Health Services archives and the Centers for Disease Control, who were all helpful and cooperative, meaning no one there thought they had done anything wrong. And as he was reading through the literature, he realized that none of the test subjects had any idea they were being studied. And this, and he, he, he himself was in America because his father was Jewish from Czechoslovakia and a war refugee, basically. They made it to the United States just under the radar right before Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia. So he was certainly aware of the implications of lack of informed consent. So he gets all this information, realizes nobody is aware that they are being studied, and this struck him as highly amoral because he was a decent human being. I mean, the lack of informed consent was top among the stomach-churning attributes, but so was the lack of actual care and treatment. So in November of 1966, he reaches out to the current director of the Division for Venereal Diseases for Public Health Services, who was a Dr. William J. Brown, and expressed concerns about the morality of the study. And a few months after that, he is invited to the CDC headquarters where he is basically harassed and berated for having doubts. Because he's not a doctor, see, he's just an interviewer and investigator. So how dare he question the medical science? How dare he? I'm really digging this. This might... I borrowed the bottle of Eile single malt. I might have to go buy my own so I can make this more often. This is really tasty. So he's berated and harassed. He wrote another letter to PHS saying, hey, why did you berate and harass me? What is going on here? And uh, he received no response, and he just kind of, he went dormant himself for a while. Uh, no, no shame or blame, it still bugged him, but he did have his own life to pursue, and he went to law school. I would love to say that he came back and sued them, but he's not the lawyer who handled this. That was a different lawyer who was also famous and well-judged, well or well-deservedly so, anyways. That's for later. His second letter, while it was ignored and he never received response, did elicit a reaction at public health services. The wagons were circled, the doctors reconvened, and they determined if treatment should now be administered, and they thought, no. <laughs> They're like, in for a penny, in for a pound, let's do this, guys. And they just doubled down on the stupidity. They actually, it actually revitalized the study, if you can believe that. Uh, all the, I mean, they all got together, of all of the doctors called in, there was only one, a Dr. Gene Stollerman, who was the chairman of Department of Medicine at the University of Tennessee. He was the only doctor who had no prior knowledge of Tuskegee. And he was like, this is not right. We need to treat these people. There is no reason not to treat them at this point. Everyone else on the panel seemed to say, nope, we need to, we need to ride this out to the very end until all of them are dead and all autopsies have been performed because science. 
and they renewed their efforts to locate members of the studies who had moved out of state or had otherwise lost track of. Nurse Rivers had retired in 1965, so they hired a new nurse to come in and, and run, this, run this down. So it's 1968 and the study starts gearing up again and they're tracing the missing men, they're trying to corral them for autopsies and this goes on for another four years. Then in 1972, Peter Buxton mentions the story to a friend of his who was a journalist for the Associated Press. And she asks if he's got documentation. He says, yes, of course, and he gives her the documentation. And she goes to her bosses at the Associated Press and they say, well, you, you aren't really an experienced enough inve uh, investigative journalist for this can we hand this off to somebody else? And she said, yes, of course, and shipped it all to Jean Heller, who received the entire story gift wrapped with a shiny red bow, including the documentation of support, and the story broke. And eventually there were lawsuits. I believe it was Fred Gray is the attorney who handled it. Fred Gray, you might know him as the attorney who defended Rosa Parks. So yeah. <laughs> he was he was a good pick not gonna lie he was definitely a good pick for for this like i said it would, it would have been awesome if peter buxton had been involved but it was it was fred gray and that's fine the survivors were granted thirty-seven thousand five hundred dollars each in 1974 dollars for inflation that would be about two hundred and fourteen thousand dollars for 40 years of medical abuse not even a quarter of a million dollars the descendants of the deceased syphilitics were granted $15,000 or approximately $86,000 in today's currency. Control group also received payments because they were also not informed of what was going on. And so they received, because they weren't, arguably they weren't harmed, but they were part of a study that for which they had not been informed or to grant consent. So they were given $16,000 which was about 91,000 in today's currency, 5,000 for their heirs, which is about $28,000. The book was initially written and released in 1981, and it was released with a new final chapter in 1993. The 1993 version, which is the one I have, includes a chapter on how Tuskegee is having long-lasting impacts on black communities, specifically in regards to the AIDS epidemic. See, behind the gay community and intravenous drug owners, the black community was and has been hardest hit by HIV AIDS. And for some not at all surprising reasons, they don't trust the doctors to treat them. Wonder why? So that was 20 years after Tuskegee ended, and here we are 50 years later, and the long-lasting impact is still felt as black communities decline in record numbers to vaccinate in response to current conditions. And because racists gonna race hate, racists don't seem to understand why black people don't just suck it up for the good of us all. Right here is why they don't suck it up for the good of us all. And they don't see how vaccine passports just fuel racism and hatred for disenfranchised and minority populations who have ample reason to hate, fear, and mistrust the CDC, the public health services, and government in general. Just suck it up, because racists are bastards. This book was excellent. James H. Jones was man on the ground when the story broke. He immediately began researching the story and his own research was instrumental in the lawsuits filed against the CDC and PHS for malfeasance. It is horrifying and a sign of the times and the shit show that's bound to come after everything calms down now that no doctor was ever cited, fined, or lost their license as a result of, participa of their participation in the study. The government paid out the fines, but no one was ever punished. Not sure if that says a whole lot about 
Yeah, that says a lot. That says a lot. For some bizarre reason, doctors are still considered sacrosanct, even when what they are engaged in is wholly evil. He goes not just into the study itself, but describes in heartbreaking detail the grinding poverty of the Deep South and, and of crushing poverty in urban areas and the effects of this on health, which helps explain the willingness of study subjects to participate. They had never seen a doctor before, for anything, ever, before being included in this study. Because they couldn't afford it, and now they are being offered free health care. What was it? There was a meme a while back, if it's for free, you're the product. That's what we have to say about, you know, Facebook, right? If it's free, it's because you're the product. There is an important lesson to learn there for all of us. I mean, they were never told what was being done. They were just told that they had bad blood and would be receiving treatment. Uh, they finally did receive treatment in 1974, two, two years after the story broke, because the public health services convened a panel to decide if they should be treated. Isn't that nice? Government programs are never good for the populace, and they last forever, or until a principled whistleblower like Peter Buxton steps forward and shines a light on the darkness. And that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, hit that subscribe button. Let me know what you think in the comments. I will see you guys next week. Bye. Yeah, I really do need to turn that squid. He does kind of look like a giant dick sitting there. Maybe I'll put him in the other corner.